0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today we present an interview of John Elizabeth Stency, led by Joshua Whitehead. In this interview, John Elizabeth and Joshua discuss John Elizabeth's novel Vanishing Monuments and poetry collection, June Bad, and how the two could be read as companion pieces. As well, John Elizabeth discusses the limits of language in pursuing identity and how June Bad lives in that unsureness. Over the course of the conversation, Joshua and John Elizabeth discuss their history, the similarity of their careers, and the universality of queer literatures and why everyone should be reading them. Joshua Whitehead is an Ojibwe Cree, two-spirit storyteller and academic from Peguis First Nation on Treaty One Territory in Manitoba. He's currently working at the University of Calgary where he teaches Indigenous literatures and cultures with a focus on gender and sexuality. He's the author of Full Metal and DigiWear, Johnny Appleseed and Making Love with the Land. He's also the editor of Love After the End, Two-Spirit Utopias and Dystopias. John Elizabeth Stinsey is a non-binary writer who grew up on a cattle farm in northwestern Ontario. John Elizabeth's work has been awarded the 2019 RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers, the Malahat Review's 2019 Long Poem Prize, and the inaugural Satur New Works Award. Their writing has appeared in Plowshares, Kenyan Review, Fiddlehead, the Malahat Review, Best Canadian Poetry, and many others. John Elizabeth is the author of the novels Vanishing Monuments and My Volcano and the poetry collection June Bad.
2: hi john it's so nice to see you you and i first met like eons ago it feels like now i don't yeah. know if you recall we like it was like a university of manitoba conference uh, i don't know if i was on a, grad a colloquium. Symposium. that was a it colloquium. yeah yeah. <laughs> <Colloquium>. <laughs> yeah and i was like reading like some of my very very first poems that were like published in prairie fire way back when that were like the blossoming kind of bones of full metal and i remember um, you reading like this really i was so intrigued um because it was like a rarity i think to see like prairie poetry that might have been like hinging on like kind of a queer poetics at that time so i wanted to kind of ask like it's been like i don't know how long ago that was like a decade oh now God, 20, 2014 probably was
3: i would i would assume or
2: 2013 uh-huh yeah, oh really
3: okay so we're yeah, aging ourselves it, okay yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> so how have things been since then you've published a book oh of poetry that, a novel vanishing monuments multiple literary magazine publications
3: yeah it's been a ride i suppose yeah i've done a, i suppose i've done a decent amount in that time it doesn't feel like it <laughs> even though i suppose everyone hates me if i say that having published like two books in a year but i don't know it's <laughs> been a it's been a ride. I mean, that was like very. I was so not understanding my relationship to queerness even at that point, which I think it's funny you're saying you're seeing a queerness in that poetry because I was very much like I didn't know what the hell was going on. I was just like, nah, I don't know who knows? who knows who knows. <laughs> which is sort of how I still I've come around to feeling that again in a more positive way. I think, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that was so long ago. I've, you know i'm in the u.s now everything is crazy i'm married i've got a dog there's
2: covid <laughs> everything has changed <laughs> exactly any yeah yeah like wow i know this is like date set to that i'm like damn, that was a long time ago. But like, I was yeah. also like a budding baby queer at the time too. So maybe it was just like, we were like recognizing each other's codes.
3: I feel like I, I was so intimidated by your like, you seem so sure of yourself in a way that I think I was maybe jealous of and didn't know I was jealous of. So I'm surprised <laughs> to hear that you, was, you saying you're a baby back then. So like, you know, I don't know, you seem very, you know, yourself.
2: <laughs> I think it's just, like, my loud, like, indigeneity that comes to the forefront that, like, spills yeah. confidence, even yeah. though I'm, like, same at AM. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit, as being a Canadian expatriate, like, when was the last time you visited what you might call, like, your Canadian home? Has it been a while?
3: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, it was not – it was last January. I came back for, like, three days because I was – Getting my picture taken for the for the cover of Quill and Quire, and for some reason they had to have a Canadian take the picture. So I was like, "All right, I'll pay to fly to Winnipeg for like three days to just like take this picture." And I'm like, I'm really grateful that I like shelled out the money for that, simply because it was literally like the last time I saw like my parents, and I actually saw my brother, who is like a cryptid, and like, you know, not really? easy to not easy to get a get a hold of, or at least you know. I don't see them as often as I can see my parents. So it's just like, it was It was just wild. And then, you know, obviously like two months later it was like, oh, I'm not going anywhere forever. Um, <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, with the border closed, I haven't been able to go yet, but we're thinking maybe we'll try to get in there in the next
2: six months or so, you know, when I was vaccinated. Except, I'm sure the prairies miss you. I'm sure you miss the prairies too. <laughs> I do. Um- Yeah, in January, I was in New York actually, right before COVID, too. And I just remember thinking, like, I was bringing my then partner to New York. I think I was there for a conference, Knowledge of Wounds, it was titled. And it was interesting to me. So, like, the person that I was seeing at the time was very much like a kind of from Alberta, small town Alberta. And like their eyes lit up when I got to New York and we got to go to like Stonewall. It was nice for me to kind of see like themselves validate their queerness and like these spaces like ripe with kind of queer history. But at the same time, I was just thinking like, this is just not for me. I could never live in New York City. Oh God. Such a small town (laughs) boy. (laughs) And I think like you and I grapple with that in our writing and in our kind of shared braided and shared lives as people too from Manitoba in thinking about like where we posit queerness, both in like urban settings and rural settings. And I know you, in that Quill & Choir interview, you've talked a little bit about what it is because now seeing representations of queerness uh, in prairie poetics. So I'm interested, like, have you like thought of, like, do you consider yourself a prairie poet? How do you write more of your queer communities now? I mean, I can cons- The prairie
3: part is weird just because I'm like originally from Northwestern Ontario and there's a lot of rocks and stuff. It's like Canadian shieldy. Like you could probably (laughs) like I I think that there's a lot of similarities and like I wouldn't necessarily say that it's outside of the prairies, but I feel like it is like it's not like Manitoba and Saskatchewan in terms of like, you know, just in terms of even like the landscape. So in that way, I'm sort of like, well, I'm almost a prairie, but... Because like, that's the landscape that I think about the most when I think Mm -hmm. about the rural, you know, upbringing. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that I find really engaging in work as well as really difficult to grapple with in life. Because I'm, yeah, I, I lived in New York for a year and I, you know, it bore me to you know, into dust. You know, I just, I mean, I lived in New Jersey, but basically New York. uh, And it's just, it it was just a really difficult place for me. And and it's funny, because I'm thinking about, you know, going to Stonewall, because I went to like a pride parade once. And I don't think there was a time in moment in my life where I felt less a part of any sort of queer community than when I was standing there, like watching a pride parade in New York. It was just like, I felt so out of place, weirdly. It was just like, this is, or I just felt so like isolated, weirdly. It was a very strange experience and it was really kind of sad. And then I, and it was also very loud and there were lots of people. And then I, you know, I didn't stay very long, but it was, it was interesting. But yeah, it's something that I think I think about a lot because, you know, obviously rural spaces, I mean, yeah, I didn't know, I, I, like, intellectually understood that gay people existed <laughs> when I was in, like, <laughs> high school, but, like, honestly, it wasn't until I moved to Manitoba and I went to school at the University of Manitoba that I really, like, was, like, met people that were in any way, like, queer or different, or at least I knew, knew were, like, you know, there were probably people back in the day that, that weren't, they were in the closet or didn't realize it, like, just as I was, but... I don't know. It's such a different, such a weird thing. Cause yeah, I feel such a draw to like these sort of smaller places, but those are also places that can be really dangerous for queer people, depending on who you are and what you look like. Of course, it can be even more dangerous, but yeah, it's just like a, it's a very weird schism that I feel like a lot of like heartbreak about. Cause it's like, I just want to live in like a beautiful fucking countryside, but I don't want my neighbor to be like a Trumper. (laughs) I don't know where I can find that maybe Vermont I don't know but even then I don't know
2: that's true I mean true when I think about myself and like my career path academically or as a writer too I'm like so umbilically attached to the prairies that I can't leave I like to I like to like visit and school at other places but like in like the heart of hearts yeah. that I have, I'm like I'm just like bound to the prairie and I have a lot of prairie friends from like, Manitoba and Saskatchewan here in Alberta too, who like have this idea that in order to be queer, one must kind of obliterate the rurality. I think this is the work that I see I'm trying to do like with Johnny Appleseed. I see that in Banishing Monuments with like Alani returning to Winnipeg, right? And I was reading your short story, Moving Parts, that was the most recent piece, which is also like kind of positing itself between kind of the urban and rural and like queerness in that middle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you think about that? Like, what is the importance of mandating and representing queerness in what we might call like rural settings versus urban?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, it's important simply because people don't do it enough. (laughs) And there are many queer people that are in these rural places. And I don't think that, I I think it's also getting better in a lot of places, which is nice. You know, there's there was a pride parade in Rainy River, Ontario, which is like (laughs) the bumfuck town that I was, you know, living outside of for all of my life. And like there's all of like these little like queer groups in like Kenora and all of these places where I wouldn't have imagined I wouldn't have been able to possibly imagine when I was there that there would be any sort of support or like anything going on so i think that there is a way that these things are getting better and i think that i mean for me when i write i'm writing for myself like i'm the only audience that i can really control and so you know writing things that are related to my experience or that sort of reflect things back to me that i don't see enough reflected like that is sort of just like what i do it for so you know with moving parts which was in plenitude so everyone can go look it up it's free to read online Yeah, that was something that, you know, and that's sort of a weirdly, like it's, it's queer sort of in its bones rather than necessarily like on the, on the page seeming, but it's sort of about, yeah, it's very much about like leaving and like not being able to like fully, fully leave these places and especially like the rural, ruralness, like it's about this character who's just keeps moving. And every time they move, they lose a part of themselves, you know, and you can read it to see how weird it gets, but it gets very strange. (laughs) But yeah, I think that it's, For me, it's just like I want to write stuff that I want to read and I want to see stuff that I just like for so much of my writing life, even like I didn't think that my life was something that I could write about. It wasn't until I was you know, honestly like around when I was writing the poems that you heard me read, like that was when I started realizing like I had just kind of gotten into like Seamus Heaney again and like his first book, uh, Death of a Naturalist fucking farm boy poems and i was like wait you can write fucking farm boy poems like he has this poem (laughs) the outlaw i don't think it's actually in that one but it's about like a bull and it's like this there's a scene about like watching the bull like mount this cow or something and like the way he describes it it was like that's a fucking bull like i've seen those motherfuckers like they're terrifying you know it's like i don't know like there's i I was just i saw so much of like the stuff that i like lived through for like 20 years of my life suddenly i was like oh people can write about that shit and then you know there's like seed catalog by robert crouch and like a bunch of like really like good prairie poets that I think I found after that, where, where I was just like, yeah, there's just people doing this stuff. And I realized talking about this, June Bat is not a farm poems. Vanishing Monuments doesn't really talk about a farm. It like gets, it's very funny that I'm, I'm talking about this in context of those books, but it's something that's really important to like, and, and I think it's just a different thing that I'm representing, I think, in that as well. Like my love of Winnipeg is sort of, and my hate of Winnipeg (laughs) are are fighting it out in Vanishing Monuments. And my love and hate of Jersey City and New York and Long Island is probably all in the other one. So I don't know.
2: Does that make sense? It does. It does. (laughs) Like kind of the elation I get when I read a book that is like unabashedly about morality and the prairies, like Robert Croce, like you're talking about. I was recently reading like KB Thor's Vulgar Mechanics, which is also kind of, farm, queerness, Randy Lundy, uh, an Indigenous poet from Saskatchewan, Field Notes for the Self. And I was like, this to me, it's just like such a home calling and so timely and necessary, I think. So I, anytime I come across something that reflects that to yeah. me, I'm like 100% into it. And then when I was asked to blur Banishing monuments yeah. with Arsenal with you, knowing you and like where you came from and where yeah. you are, I was like, I'm so excited to see this. And then... <laughs> It's interesting to me too, because like Winnipeg is becoming a really interesting setting, literarily speaking, because you have Vanishing Monuments. It's like, I guess you have Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> <laughs> I,
3: oh, I guess. <laughs> we have Canada Reads winner, Johnny Appleseed. Oh, I suppose then, that might count. <laughs>
2: <yeah>. <laughs> and then you have Casey Platt too, with yeah. Goldfish.
3: And I mean, Dave's so, with
2: true. Yeah, you know,
3: her stuff. I mean, her stuff I think is less... I don't know if she ever says Winnipeg, but we all know it's Winnipeg.
2: <laughs> like, this we all my it. yeah Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about, like, Vanishing Monuments a little bit and, like, the setting and kind of... Winnipeg is, like, a character unto itself. So what did you take from Winnipeg to, like, build Vanishing Monuments?
3: Oh, my God. I mean, I think that I would be shocked if someone wrote a book that was somehow connected to Winnipeg in which Winnipeg is not a character. I think that <laughs> if you live there... Like, even when I went back there in January, it was like a a cold fucking Winnipeg day. And I was like, maybe I don't miss this as much It's like this. It gave me the Winnipeg treatment. And I was like, damn, like, yeah, this is the this is the real deal. I sort of appreciated that. I was like my misery for the next few days is makes me feel at home in a way. So I don't know. I think just if you live there, you kind of have this. I feel like everyone who lives in Winnipeg, and I think this sort of goes with the prairie too, is like it has this kind of like ambivalence like you hate it but it's beautiful and it's brutal but it's lovely or it's like i don't know There's a, there's a sort of intensity to it that's i think kind of why it's hard to escape for me like i i feel like winnipeg is is one of my homes because it, it was just like a really intense it's just a really like combative city to live with in a certain way like with the winter with the terrible politics and like all the horrible shit that happens there and all of the sort of beautiful weirdness as well I don't know. It's just like that was the thing that I most connected with and it makes Winnipeg, I think, feel the most at home because it is one of those places I just have really complicated feelings. And so that was what I wanted to obviously bring to to the book and to Alani's sort of experience of Winnipeg was that kind of difficulty. And also like Winnipeg, I had a lot of like heartbreak and like horrible kind of like mental health downtimes in Winnipeg just in terms of like I just went through some shit when I was in Winnipeg. Like, I think in the back I said, you know, thank you to Winnipeg, which fucked me up, unlike any other city could or something like that. I don't remember the exact (laughs) wording but (laughs) like, it was just like, I I went through a lot of shit there. So it was, you know, I I had all these kind of, this kind of baggage, which is very much what kind of Alani is going through in returning to Winnipeg, is just this sort of haunted places because yeah I mean when I go back to Winnipeg there are like places where I'm like oh that place is kind of like tainted by this memory this like whole (laughs) neighborhood is kind of like oh I don't know like that street is like and I think that's probably pretty similar for most people in wherever they're from like I think that's just a a, a sort of a thing that happens in home like you just like there were those places where you just are sort of bogged down with memory and that was really what i was kind of trying to pull off with winnipeg and i I mean i said in winnipeg mostly because it was just like why not set a book in winnipeg like that was sort of the impetus was like i know winnipeg i can set a book there and it was obviously became even more of a perfect setting the more i set it there oh yeah winnipeg
2: she's a cruel mistress uh (laughs) every time i'm going like should i move back to manitoba and it's like minus 50 (laughs) <laughs> and the summers plus forty, and it's like a million mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, she definitely hardens us to the world. Like I think you and I both released a book of poetry and a novel within one year. Like I think yeah. Winnipeg and Manitoba and like the rural hardness that we come from has like made us workhorses.
3: <laughs> yeah. you kind of have to be scrappy. It's like, you gotta, if you're going to escape, you have to, <laughs> you have to really like prove that you can do something outside of that. I think you kind of have to, I don't know. There's like a sort of scrappiness that I think that, you have to kind of have to, in order to just like pull yourself out of it. Cause it's one of those places that sort of draws people in and then they sort of never leave the orbit in a weird way. It has a, a strange gravity. So you kind of have to really like get some escape velocity in order to
2: escape <laughs> it. I don't know. For I sure. like Winnipeg, it, it, It's just like, I don't know. It's like, I love to hate Winnipeg as you said, but yeah. like the kind of, it's everything centers around like the exchange and like Osborne and, and all of the kind of, the artistic hub of that city that like it really trained me like I remember being like just going up and doing spoken word poetry nights randomly and like improving with jazz musicians and hip-hop artists and like super radically anarchist queer folks so like I don't know it was just like a good tutelage for me yeah um do you think it's gonna teach you anything (laughs) like that too or
3: I mean, I had a lot of experiences like that. I mean, I started like reading my poetry publicly in Winnipeg. I sort of got my feet wet in a lot of things. You know, I got connected with CV2 and did some work for them and stuff. Like I did a lot of like, there were a lot of opportunities that I was able to get there simply because I think of its size and because of, you know it's sort of a small town you can kind of like crowbar your way into some places that you might not be able to in like like you know i lived in new york for a year i didn't i don't think i went to a, i went to one book launch <laughs> like i was like really? there's i don't know it's just like it was i think it's just a more natural place to sort of like network and try things out like i felt I, I i really like valued my time in winnipeg i feel like i it was a safe sort of crucible for me in a way to sort of like get my feet wet in all of these things, mostly just because other people weren't trying to do necessarily all the things that I was trying to do. And it was just, you know, if you had a little bit of ambition, you could, you could sort of make things happen there. And there's a lot of support with like, you know, the writer's guild and stuff. Like I had a great mentorship with Jennifer still because I just decided to like apply to that. And that was just like an amazing way to sort of like get introduced to Being a professional and taking myself seriously, like that was what I was getting out of Winnipeg in the last like year or two. I was there. It was just sort of, it was it was a good place for me to start trying to take myself seriously because there were some ways that I could see myself sort of achieving things, even if it's just sort of this small thing in small city that nobody cares about in Canada. (laughs) I mean, you know, in terms of Canada, Canada doesn't give a shit about Winnipeg. I don't know where where anywhere else would, but which I I. I think also makes you scrappy. Maybe also, so you're coming out of Winnipeg. You gotta, you know, you gotta make Winnipeg look good. I don't know. I was like, I don't want people to think that this is like a, a place where nowhere, no one comes from because there's some really, you know, obviously brilliant people pass there and stay there or leave. You know, it's just like, you know, I don't know. Does that make sense?
2: <laughs> it does. Oh, I, I just haven't thought about Jennifer still in a while, but such a mentor to me as well. Um and She's like CJ Crow and like Catherine Hunter. Oh, now I miss Winnipeg. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like writing this like this new book that I'm working on, and it's like something I'm thinking about because you're also like a brilliant visual artist as well. You've designed your covers. <laughs> Vanishing Monuments, I think I was reading like obviously has like this film, right? And then there's some type of etching, I believe, in the actual negatives.
3: Um, I don't think the I mean the negatives are just blank, I think. I just I probably could have done more, maybe just scratched it. I don't know. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I I just love it. you're just like so talented in always different ways, and the visual <laughs> is so interesting to me. But I so my very first job when I was in Winnipeg, or that was in South Kirk, Manitoba, I worked at a Walmart photo lab and this was like oh back at the very final days of like developing things from 35 mil. Nice and <laughs> so like Interesting thinking about, like, even just me saying, oh, I miss Winnipeg. Sometimes I think, like, nostalgia and memory, like, such a brilliantly fatal flaw, I guess, I might say. Yeah. Tell tell us a little bit about, like, your your use of memory um, and photography in Vanishing Monuments. How did those kind of go hand in hand for you? Yeah, I mean, memory
3: is definitely, like, the big thing that Vanishing Monuments is about. And photography, I think, is one of those things that kind of gets assumed to be like this sort of like objective memory, which I think is a fun thing to sort of play with. Like having someone who's obsessed with memory being a part of this medium, which is sort of touted as being the sort of like only way to really like preserve something truly. Though that's obviously not how they use photography. But yeah, I mean, it's about Alani, who's going back to Winnipeg because their mother, who has been seen since they ran away from Winnipeg at 17, Uh, has dementia. And so they sort of going back, their mother is kind of like, basically, maybe has lost all memory of pretty much anything. And it's sort of, so it's very much like this big memory pile that they're going through. And they're sort of thinking about their mother's, uh, their mother was also a photographer. Yeah, it's this big swell of going back and sort of trying to confront and sort of remember everything. And it and, and it's sort of, yeah, the novel is also structured around this thing called the memory palace, which is like this sort of mnemonic device where you sort of imagine things in like this house that you know really well and so they use their mother's house and they're trying to use it as a way to sort of remember everything about their life all their like little important episodes which are mostly represented with like photographs in the house but then that's such a mess in this book and it's <laughs> it's undependable it's like a haunted house basically like it's like sometimes you can't go through every room like it's just it's not this sort of like clean thing that you imagine when you think about this sort of memory palace and it was just sort of i'm someone who has a really bad memory and i feel like that's what remembering is like for me is like sometimes you go down a hallway that doesn't have any doors and you're like I don't I guess I'm not remembering anything here but sometimes you do I don't know it's a very I wanted to to really kind of have that like not 100% kind of recall because that was sort of the horror of some of the stuff behind Vanishing Monuments is like the instability of memory and the sort of like mortality of memory is like all around that book. So it's many little things that were sort of like working on different facets of that idea.
2: Definitely. Like photography as like preservation is incredibly trot but interesting to me yeah. too specifically between like kind of what we might think of as like the 35 male and then now with social media like instagram do the gram but the memory palace when i first read vanishing Von- monuments i was like this is so interesting and i think was it something from cicero that it's like a mnemonic device taken from cicero
3: yeah i think he gets credit for it i don't know if he actually made it up <laughs> but it was just a way that he would remember like really long speeches like he would just walk imagine himself walking through one of his fucking palaces because it was fucking Cicero yeah. <laughs> and he would just think about like certain rhetorical points like being placed in certain rooms and he would know so that way he wouldn't necessarily have to be like his sort of like super recited speech but he would know he would imagine himself like oh I'm gonna walk into the, his next room and this is that sort of point that I have there and it's, it's basically the, the, the way it works is that memory is really tied into place, which is also a thing that Vanishing Monuments is really interested in. And so if you imagine something being placed somewhere specifically like that through this device, like you can actually remember stuff really well and really specifically because you're sort of tying it up with this other thing that you can imagine yourself more like concretely moving through. You know, that's sort of the the basis behind that.
2: Yeah, I also have like a terrible memory. Like I, yeah. always felt like, I am like Dory from Finding Nemo. Like, if this comes to Calgary, I will play the role of Dory. And it will become so natural for me. Yeah, you'd be a great but Dory. Thank you. <laughs> which, which
3: doesn't mean you're anything like Ellen DeGeneres. I just want to make that a point.
2: Very true, very true. We've been known, but. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the Memory Palace. I love that. It's interesting to me, like, kind of like reading Vanishing and like June Bat as like back to back, like sibling stories. Which is also how i think of like full metal and johnny in yeah. that it's like this memory palace it's just like I, I like how you're using this word like kind of like tinting it with like horror and hunting because like even t- thinking about like how emotions leak into place and that it's also tinted yeah. with memory and like you're walking through winnipeg as as john and like this streets <laughs> yeah. tainted for me now yeah it's interesting so like how did you find like i also maybe did some of this in johnny but like and maybe with the new book that i'm working on with nonfiction. but it's like how do we kind of use that knowing it can also like actively harm us to like unearth memories like that as people not just as writers but also as speakers how did you find that you placed that into a book like vanishing monuments
3: i think that that is more harrowing for other people i don't know i might Maybe a little bit of a masochist, or I just am fine. I don't know. There's like a, there's not that much stuff that I'm like that like really like ruins me to like think about. I mean, there's some stuff that's really like ugh, but it's it's never like. I mean, I, I'm 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 very privileged to say that it's not like super deep trauma that I'm thinking about when I'm talking about this. So I think that for some people it's probably really different. I don't know. I think that that's just like a really human experience that I wanted to sort of. Get to. And I think that's sort of what. And I wanted to just sort of. I really like that people are like emotionally moved by my books because I feel like I'm a person that has zero emotions. Like I feel like this, just thanks to depression, I suppose, just like this numbness. I'm just like, it's so nice to hear that people like feel things when they read my stuff. And I know that it's there, but I don't quite have access to it. It's almost like I'm using everyone else to be like my nerves. Like you feel the thing that I want to feel. But like, I don't know. Does that make any sense? I mean, yeah, I love um, that visual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the the Borg, you know, trying to make the, <laughs> assimilate everybody into
2: my collective. <laughs> the vast land of nerds. I yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just like the question It's like a little selfish, I guess. Yeah. But so, like with Johnny, everyone reads it as memoir, and I know you've talked about like how your like Alani helps you as John discover yeah. yourself and your own identity categories and johnny very much did that for me too but i think you and i have similar relationships with our narrators and that we're so like attached to them almost like organically or um biotextually maybe i might say has that come up for you or like i'm just interested in like your experiences with your character and how people have perceived that
3: yeah i think that i luck out in that people don't imagine that i could ever be a Lonnie, so they don't assume it's some sort of Autobiography, and also it might be because I'm white. I don't know if that's a that might honestly come into play. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, you're not quite marginalized enough that your everything that you write is autobiography. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because for me, I don't know if this is similar to how you wrote Johnny. But like for me, Alani at first was this sort of thought experiment where I was just like, I want to write a character who has this sort of unstable, unstable identity. That's really important to me. I was like trying to think about the ways that identity, memory. Like that's the thing that I was was at the heart of Vanishing Monuments, that's what it's about. It's like identity and memory. And like, how does that connect when with a character who doesn't necessarily have a sort of stable identity, as I don't believe, like, anyone does at this point. Mm-hmm. But, like, that was sort of the start of it. Like, I was, like, very interested in queerness. And I was like, I want to write a, a gender queer character because it just seemed like something that was... And I was maybe, like, gently assuming that about... I was like, I'm genderqueer, just as a way of being like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't know. I was like, I didn't really, like, super... I think deeply about the ways in which this character might have been similar to me. And that was something that really, like, through the writing, I got closer and closer to them. And I made them less and less sort of this weird caricature that I think I was, I had them at at first, where they were like a different person every time they, like, you know, weren't like, because they're, they're like gender fluid basically. But like, I was like making it too sort of like identity ish. And it was like, I was, I smoothed them out. And then I suddenly, like was able to see my reflection in the, in the smoothness. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I was like, all right, this whole time I was like, which I really like, you know, I, I'm really like thankful for Alani. Cause like, I had to do a lot of research, listen to a lot of like against me, all sorts of stuff, <laughs> all these like, you know, introduced me to a lot of like reading and books that I wouldn't have probably necessarily stumbled upon if I hadn't really like taken some time some time to sort of like think about this story. And it really like, they really like brought me to myself in a weird way. I don't know, was Johnny, did you write Johnny thinking that he was like sort of a reflection of you or was that a thing that you sort of had an experience with as well? I
2: think Or was there a part where
3: it became like, oh no, (laughs) too close?
2: (laughs) A little bit of both. That was an experience too because I very much agree with you. I was like, I set out to write a book for myself that I wanted to read. Yeah. I never, I didn't see it. And it's our perspective is like a Winnipeg and, and the rural. It's so interesting in that. Um, but as I wrote it, I kind of felt like, so like the book itself was just like yes. this blank book, right? just like a, a, a body with a spine that had nothing in it. And what I had to do is maybe like something that you're talking about here um, with a memory palace in that I had to like place objects in it. Like, Put something into the vessel that like fueled it and energized it and as it kept building and growing it just became this like reflection too and it was interesting to me to see um and maybe you've had this experience too in that as we like think we're consciously building this character or this vessel or this path yeah. in order to animate it, it almost was like have to like bloodlet into it and in different ways and in that kind of bloodletting be it through placing a memory or making a memory palace or having these objects as like totems of place and space in that as we craft it, it automatically becomes because of our identities as like indigenous or as queer as well, it becomes so intrinsically tied to us as people. Whereas say someone like, uh, (laughs) we'll just say unnamed head cis white writer, uh, (laughs) gets to kind of write just for the sake of writing. And even though, like, we want and are doing that, I feel like at the same time, it wholly becomes political as people who are queer. And I don't know if yeah. do you have some of that for yourself, too, or? I mean, yeah, I think that's
3: that's definitely, like, we don't have the freedom to sort of, like, write. I mean, as it, it's just the I think the readership are more looking for us in the story than we're looking for, you know... Philip Roth or whoever, whoever, <laughs> whatever writer we want to say is, is this man. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I just assumed it was a man, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that's, I think that it's true. I mean, I think that art would be boring if you didn't do a little bit of that bloodletting though. Like, I feel like that's, I think that I kind of lean towards and there's a lot of that and like, there's a lot of me and Alani It's just like very, I, I do a, a lot of kind of looking at something and then sort of changing absolutely all of the details but the bones are still there like there was many ways that there are many experiences that are experiences that I had that are in that book uh that I've given or that I gave to other characters as well so but I I don't know I think also like you know it makes for a dull book if there's not you in it or at least for me like I don't want to read a book where I'm not in it I've written stuff where I look back and I'm just like where the hell are you like some of my early fiction I'm like what who are these people? Like, where did you come up with this? Like, why are you just regurgitating some sort of like Raymond Carver-esque kind of bullshit character? Like, why are they all drunks? You're not a drunk? I don't know. It's like, it's so funny, like looking back and like not being able to see yourself in your work. Uh, And I guess that's just something that I don't, I wouldn't want to experience. But yeah, I think there's definitely a different way that you're read, like you're not given the sort of, Nobody believes that a, a queer person or a, like marginalized person can make something up in a way that like someone else can. Like you, I don't know. Like you know, there's plenty of like books with like female characters written by men. It's just like you, know, what did that? Like why can't we also make that up? Like that's obviously like some bullshit that they constructed. I mean, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't do that, but I don't know. It's like it's weird that that. If you're like a little bit marginalized, suddenly you have a little bit less permission to, or like people just believe that you can't have that yeah. skill. Like it's just a craft skill. Like you know how to create human beings.
0: No,
2: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we can never invent new things or like have characters yeah. who have never been like romantically or intimately involved with. is just yeah. mind blowing to me. Um, <laughs> but you did that. Uh, and you made that with June bat. And I was like, I just need to like read this blurb from Billy, Billy Ray Belcourt. Oh, yeah. it's just, I love it. And I this is exactly what I felt when I read June Bat. It's a work of immense gentleness. Dindzy adds their June bat, uh, multitudinous concept of such explanatory power. I'm certain it'll endure in the collective memory of Canadian writing. Mm. And then you crafted this like whole kind of ideology which which feels kind of like contained for like the speaker of these poems but also becomes a container that other people can kind of place themselves in or see themselves within as an idiom or a neologism for an identity category within queerness so June Junebad as a concept as a term as an adjective as a verb <laughs> eludes description right but if yeah. someone was just going to kind of come if you were just going to tell someone a little bit about June Junebad like how would you explain it?
3: see that's the thing it's like you say that it is so you know it's it's unexplainable but would you please explain it i mean i think that you know it's a loosely can be identified as this sort of like queer like sort of if you were to put a pin in it that's sort of where you would put the pin but i think it's 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 something that i made willfully sort of like obtuse and strange and contradictory and kind of hard to pin down because i i I just felt like that was the the honest way to talk about identity just in general i mean like you could just say that june bat a june bat is just like an identity and and just like all identities it is doesn't make any fucking sense if you put it on paper like there's all these (laughs) ways it contradicts itself and it yeah. And it doesn't explain itself or like it explains itself and then explains itself the exact opposite. Like there's two poems in jumbat, bat, uh, apophatic jumbat bat and cataphatic June bat, which is the same poem. But in one is in the negative and one is in the positive, like a jumbat bat is this, 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 this. And then the next one is a jumbat is not this, 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 this. And so it's very much just like trying to sort of like erase all of this sort of like bullshit terminology that we... And it was mostly born from a sort of like frustration with a lot of the ways, the sort of plethora and overlap of some of these sort of like queer identities, like especially with in terms of gender, there's like there's a billion of them and they're helpful to a point. But then there's also a point where it starts putting you in a box and it's like what's the point of these boxes i don't know i just it didn't feel like it had space and i wanted to create something that had space and you can't get any more space i think than than what i did with june bat at least that's what i think
2: <laughs> i don't think i, mean, I, I do imagine it i don't think so at all <laughs> like june bat for me kind of felt like like i agree with what you're saying too in terms of like identity and the kind of amalgamation and Plethora of queerness and queer identities under the banner of queer, I guess. Yeah. And for me, like queer is kind of removed from something like LGBT, which are so stat families feel static and yeah. almost kind of like archived and limited space for allowance for like gender fluidity, non binariness, transness. Even though trans is in that, it's still kind of categorized yeah. within us as something like that's class, that's race, yeah. right? And then queerness, I kind of feel, too, just as kind of like a political identifier as it becomes popularized by youth, and rightfully so. And it's in, I love watching, like, the youth change uh, or mutate it in ways that fit them, and I think June bat is that. But Bad for me, also feels like an activating of, like, queer as not only a noun, but a verb, too. One, in, like, it's kind of flightiness, and two, in its big, like very grounded consciousness at the same time. So... I think yeah, it's an energizing call to like activate yeah. for me, like the queer yeah. and queerness as, as a something as animate and like moving rather yeah. than just being like a little pin. Yeah.
3: No, I think that's what I, I also like queer. I mean, I, I, I'm more connected with the bigger, the higher in the umbrella you get like trans or non-binary, that seems better than like getting into the dirty details and then starting to put all these words together. that, you know, do we actually believe all these things? I don't know. It's like the, the, The queer is sort of like a verb or whatever. Like that queer feels to me the one that has the most space. So I definitely, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, I think I just, and I think it's what the problem is language. That's what it comes down to. It's not the problem with like people doing this stuff. It's just the language is insufficient. Like language doesn't describe, like you can't describe a feeling in words really. Like, exactly. And that's sort of the problem Is like, once you get more like into the details, into the weeds, it's just like, you're trying to use language for something that the language can't do. And so I, I, I sort of strive for for the, the one that doesn't allow language to pretend like it's saying something is certain, which I don't think is, I don't know. So that was sort of what I was going for. But I think the, yeah, I think that very much Junbat is sort of like an active queerness in terms of like the way that it is queering meaning or queering the idea of identity. I think is is definitely like I, I'm very heartened by your response by your sort of review.
2: <laughs> I was very emboldened too by the book. And you in the book you write words fail because they were built to fail. And I think that's like yeah, the entire yeah. premise of like what we're saying yeah, right here, right? Definitely. I always say English fails us. It's such a gender boring language. <laughs> and then <to> <laughs> neologism the like June Um, which you could you can never it's just a trace all the time and it's sensorial rather than like trying to put emotions or emotives into words it's rather just like embracing kind of the lack of definition as the kind of penultimate definition and in there there's room for play growth exploration tendrils so i'm like be into it and like also keep on, crit- keep on critiquing language as a forever yeah. failing language that was built to fail. I, was just, I saw yeah. the heart of that line so bad in the book. Yeah,
3: yeah. that's it. That's it. That's a great line. And I think it's is that from June Bat and the Dump on the Dump? I, I, I love that poem. Yeah, the June Bat on the Dump. I think that's the one. I, <laughs> I love that poem. It's one of the later ones I did as well. So maybe it contains its sort of thesis statement a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> Even though it's er- early in the book, it's it's one that I wrote near the end. So I think I was very much like, yeah, that's the mood that this book is going for. I don't know. I think that that's the thing that I'm most interested in is is the way that like art trying to do something that it or trying to do something with art that language can't let happen or something like trying to like even with vanishing monuments, there are ways in which I sort of like play with reader expectations to just get them to read the book and not, but then not satisfy those same expectations. Like there's, there's a lot of things that are left unsaid and there's a lot of things that are you, you're you not certain of at the end. And I think that you said earlier about like, these being like sibling books, which I think is very much like they're very, I, I'm glad that they came out at the same time, despite it being fucking 2020 <laughs> um, because <laughs> yeah. that I would not do again. Uh, but, but I feel like they, they really like, are an interesting pairing and they're both kind of about, you know, this sort of uncertainty and sort of having to deal with uncertainty and being okay with uncertainty and embracing uncertainty in a lot of ways.
2: No, definitely. Like I just see them, they they talk to each other, they're like singing cacophonously sometimes, but they're still singing. I feel the same way about Medal and Johnny too. Never would I ever advise anyone to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then John goes and does it. I'm like, eh, please yeah. survive. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, you it's... talked about it, and you, may, you you let me know it was going to be difficult, but you didn't tell me there was going to be a fucking pandemic.
2: <laughs> you left <laughs> well, that part like, out, Josh. I like a curveball, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was like, How emboldened? Builds character.
2: Okay. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. Okay, I have like, so many questions, but I, I feel like I want to get towards like getting our time fully settled. But I guess I'll just use this one as a, a moving towards the end. I think you and I like we both write about the body a lot. And that's so prevalent in both, but June bat specifically. Yeah. In which you ask in the poem, what is a body if not? And this is also one of my favorite lines from June Bat. What is a body if not a rhetorical question? So yeah, I'm just like, interested. like, what are your thoughts, like, of the body? Or <laughs> how do you posit the body within the story? Like a question I keep asking myself is like, what isn't what even is a body like the signifier body, automatically within the English way, posits like this physical vessel that we're in, but it's yeah. also so collective and connected to like river bodies and land bodies and the book itself as a body of text. Yeah, i was just kind of yeah. interested, like pick your brain a little bit That's oh my god <laughs> i wrote a whole poem about not knowing what the hell
3: a body is <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i, mean, the, I think it's one it of those
1: too.
3: yeah i mean it's in sort of sort of thinking about language still it's like the body is one of those things like the more you think about it the less sense it makes the less sense that the sort of like like it, it seems meaning more and more meaningless the more you think about it and that sort of was my experience and sort of you know coming coming to myself and like thinking about like bodies and what they mean. And like, the more you think about it, the less you're like, nah, they don't mean fucking shit. I don't know. Like in the same way, you, like look at the word Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. you say the word Tuesday, 40 times, suddenly it's gobbledygook and it doesn't mean anything to you. And it's just like, what is this? Oh, how do you spell this word this way? Like, what is, this, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know. Like that's, I, yeah, I, the body is this weird thing that sort of, You know, obviously it does get in the way, like, I don't know, it's all, it's kind of an obstacle, honestly, for that's sort of how I sort of view it. And it's sort of how it's, it's this thing that's like sometimes a prison and sometimes a a pleasurable place to be. I don't know. It's sort of, I have a very, as with most things, I have a very complicated experience (laughs) of the body and a very, you know, up and down sort of like sometimes you're in sync with it and sometimes you're not in sync with it. I mean, kind of probably in the same way as these other bodies is like, sometimes they're on your side and sometimes they're not like, they're not this sort of static thing. I think maybe that's what I would, you look at it differently every day. Like sometimes I'm like, hey, and sometimes I'm like, no, you know, it's like depending on like <laughs> yeah. where I'm yeah. at. Like sometimes I'm like, yeah, you, this is okay. This is great. I like this. And sometimes I'm like, why can't I be over there? <laughs> like, why can't why can't my brain be in that body? I don't know. <laughs> so it's really, yeah, it's, it changes on the on the day I think.
2: Not for sure. Like I don't. Know. i As someone with gen, um, body dysmorphia too. Like I also have this like tenuous relationship with this thing I call body. But then I always kind of find myself leaning towards like first and foremost, like I, I, I'm I think more, I'm more inclined to lean towards poetry as a form or as a, um, a tool to use in telling any type of story. And us both of us being like poets who turn novelists, it's like the poetics of the body make it one, like the body as a word, as a noun, as a kind of conjunction, too, is like a terrifying gargantuan word, noun, language, yeah. right? Yeah. But at the same time, like the kind of the minuscule elements of body. I don't know, I'm getting very philosophical here. (laughs) The minuscule elements of it from a poet's perspective allow it to be so pliable that in the kind of this physical realm we're in as people in bodies, I can have a tenuous, sometimes dissatisfactory and sometimes wholly pleasurable relationship with body. But when when you put the body on the page, that's when I think it really kind of pins itself as a kind of constellatory maybe or like pliable or playful
3: Yeah, I think the thing about the, yeah, the details is where the body becomes interesting or like thinking about like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I can have, you know, my good old gender dysmorphia, but like, no, I like my hands. I don't know. There's like those parts that don't, like the body doesn't even agree with itself. Like everything, not even your own response to this thing we call body can be like one simple thing. So like, yeah, I think like a constellation of feelings. And, you know, and also like the constellations, they sort of they're always moving, you know, it's always changing a bit. So I don't know. I like that, that that idea. But the details definitely like feel like, yeah, I don't know, like, so do you think that like you were talking about the book, like the novel as like a body like how, how does fiction tie in with body for you? Like, does that feel like a harder place to grapple
2: with that sort of thinking
3: or the idea of bodies? I don't know.
2: I mean, yeah, I, it's definitely something that's like on my mind all the time because like fiction or even poetry or nonfiction that I'm working on now, it's like, okay, I do think of them as bodies, as like being hailed under the, the kind of hailing of the word body. Yeah. And I don't know if people think that. And I guess it just kind of goes back to what I was thinking before and asking before too, like dip the kind of requirements, like bloodlet into these vessels that we call books. Yeah. And in that that's how you kind of become like the kind of a necromancer or the animator. <laughs> uh, this like little world that you're like, yeah. you have these like strings on, right? And you're like pulling it, and yeah. you're like dance Johnny, dance Alani. <laughs> but then it becomes like it's almost you're in a relationship, I think, with the book uh, and yeah, with the characters, definitely. and you like birth them in a sense. Uh, and yeah. they're so like of your own flesh and bone and sense and. and all of that, right? Like love and heartache and pain. And for me, it's just like hard to divorce myself as like a BIPOC person, but also as a queer writer too from the book itself as a whole. Yeah. Which is like, maybe like I've stopped calling myself like a novelist or poet or an essayist. And I've kind of been thinking recently like that all of writing, specifically for someone who we might think of as marginalized, like BIPOC, queer, or disabled or any intersection therein, like what we're crafting is literate, like literature, but it's also not. It's, it is. <laughs> it's a do <June> that yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I just keep going back to the word, like it's a biotext. It's fictional, but yeah. it's also so indebted to the body.
3: No, I mean, I think that, you know, thinking about books is, bot- I mean, books, you know, obviously, especially novels, like there's some, they got their fatty parts, they got their bones, <laughs> you know, it's like, you can see, you find the heart. I think that there is like a lot of ways that like, Working on a, it feels like you're sort of like trying to create Frankenstein, the way that we sort of like bloodlet, it. just trying to give it some fucking life, and like we're trying to make it sort of like live, be able to sort of like walk away from us, maybe, and then eventually come back to us, or whatever the hell happens to Frankenstein, and then actually read that book you are not supposed to. But don't tell, yeah, Doctor, whatever her name was.
2: <laughs> I will announce this to all of Katie's American literature. Yeah. <laughs> One so named John Elizabeth Stinsley has not read Frankenstein. I'm just kidding, mm-hmm. Mary Shelley, we, Yeah, we, you're Mary Shelley, <laughs> I guess I'm on the podcast, but yeah, to let it go and let it come back and have it reflect us, I think that's what our books did for us, right? And it gifted yeah. us so much in our kind of being in this like ruin where we needed these representations coming from Manitoba and like being baby queer yeah. people <laughs> and then crafting this almost like matriarch for ourselves or yeah, this like definitely this caretaker who came back and that, that to me is yeah. such a gift. Uh, yeah. I think the power of story is so resonating, even if it's so personal, if it was just for us. I mean, that's maybe... almost like,
3: you know, I think that that's the thing too is like, I mean, it sounds sort of weirdly selfish to sort of say that you just write for yourself, but like there are many people who I know have these sort of overlaps with me where they will love it if it's for me. Like I, that's the only thing that I can control, but that doesn't mean that other people won't connect with it almost as deeply as I do. Yeah. So it's really a kind of a way to... I think like make art more accessible because if you can make it accessible to one human, the only human you can control, there'll be some other humans that find it. I don't know. Like I, I think specifically in my next book, my volcano, which is coming out next March, that book I wrote kind of like knowing like my one friend, Brooke, like they were going to love the shit out of this book. And <laughs> like, that was like the, the closest I've gotten to like writing a book with like an ideal reader in mind. I'm like, I know that this book is bonkers as hell, but I know they're gonna love it like crazy, and they did. They've already read it; they love it. But so I was right. I but it's—I <laughs> mean, I—I I also knew was writing a book very much for myself. But it is, yeah. It's sort of like creating your own mentor, creating your own friends. Like I'm a really kind of like isolated and kind of lonesome soul, I think. And I think that it's sort of creating the things that I wished, like, honestly, there's a lot of stuff in Vanishing Monuments, which is just like wish fulfillment. Like I was like, you know, there's like a queer mentorship aspect of the book, which is just like, I wish, I wish I had this sort of like trans mentor who could have been like, hey, you let's, let's hang out. And I'm going to tell you about yourself or something like, I don't know. It's just like, like, there's a lot of things that are just like, kind of weirdly fantasy in a weird way, even though it's not really fantasy, but it's just like, I just wanted to make that exist so that someone could see that and be like, ah, it's possible. I don't know. There's a lot of little things like that in that book, I think.
2: Oh, for, yeah, I agree. And I I love what you're saying about like crafting it for, I love this idea of like the reader that's a friend. Yeah. Um, they like, they love it. It's going to be a good selling book. <laughs>
3: yeah, let's hope.
2: <laughs> but I think too that like, as we craft so subjectively and personally and maybe even of and for ourselves, that's my like kind of relationship that we put into the, the work. Yeah. And this is how I think of like Johnny, where like I have like, you know, a Karen coming up to me and basically being like, <laughs> this book is like super queer. It's about, you know, native people. I would never touch it, but the relationship with the grandmother. I love that. And it's yeah. like <laughs> that the personal, when it's like, so, entwined um, in writing that as we kind of write for the, the South, we also kind of write universally. Yeah. Which to definitely. me was like such an interesting eye-opening thing um, to have yeah. like, you know, like an older white woman who probably in Winnipeg was like, probably went home and like had Jesus all over her walls. Yeah. <laughs> <to come laughs> and say, I saw myself in your book. That was, that's, yeah. that was just an interesting revelation to me. Yeah. I
3: had, I had experiences like that as well with like some of my like in-laws who read, reading like vanishing monuments or june bat like my like my wife's uncle read june bat and he's like this dude has kids is like in his 50s or whatever but he was like i really connected with june bat and like not obviously the queer stuff but like the idea of like trying to find yourself like the sort of like struggle to sort of like figure out who you are like that's the the story the human story at the center of june bat and yeah, like yeah. i have a friend i and my, my wife's aunt read, uh, like, Vanishing Monuments, and she was sort of, she was very, it, it was funny, because she was
2: very
3: insecure. It's like, yeah, that's exactly, like, like, just the way that she connected with Alani and, like, this idea of, like, going home and sort of fraughtness. She was, like, really connected with that, and she, she was like, I don't know if that's tr- right, and these are people, I mean, she wasn't someone that really re- read or thinks of herself as a reader. I was like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, this is just, like, yeah. you know, these stories, right, are not, like... I'll be them queer, I'll be them indigenous, I'll be them any of these sort of marginalizations. They're all fucking humans. Like, that's the thing that, like, when you write something, like, really, like, and this is sort of getting into, like, the bloodletting stuff. Like, if you get into sort of, like, that sort of, like, human, humanness is sort of what we're putting into these books as as much as it is painful and can be painful um, for those who have feelings, not like me, but... (laughs) But you know, as, as those are sort of like the, the human stories that people can really connect with. And I think that is sort of the short sightedness of a lot of readers who are just like, this yeah. book is written by a black person. I'm not black. I, how could I connect to this book? And it's just like, you read that book, and you're like, Oh, my God, like, there's so many like human things, human similarities between all these stories. And that almost makes it more like tragic the ways that some of these characters go through such worse shit. It's like, Oh, my God, like, they're so human and this is such a human fucked up thing that's happening to them. And it wouldn't happen to me because of this one weird aspect that's different. I
2: don't know. Yeah. The branding of, of literature is interesting. It's like you're saying, like why would I read a black literature, like a black novel yeah. as an, a, a non-black person? Like, I see that all the time in bookstores. Yeah. And I also see when people are like so surprised that they saw themselves in June bed, or yeah. that, you know, this white Christian woman saw herself in Johnny Appleseed. That yeah. also, like, it's a failing, I think, of the publishing industry and the editing yeah. industry as well, to like mandate that black literature should be read by black people and indigenous literatures for indigenous peoples, um, yeah. and queer literatures for queers, right? Yeah, that whole thing. I have a lot to talk about. Yeah. That. about I, that. I save <laughs> it
3: for another hour. <laughs> edge, yeah. No, it is yeah.
2: very much, very much agree.
3: Like all these sort of like, it's nice to have those sort of like classifications. But then if it's in the different shelf in the library, like only the people that are looking for it are gonna find it. So I don't know, there's all these ways that, it's helpful for those who are looking for that, but then it's also can be really damaging for people who just don't realize that they can see themselves. And Like, I mean, you know, the trans narrative, especially is one that I think many people can connect to on a sort of just human level. Like it's, it's more intense for many trans people, but it's like, you know, it's a story about like trying to make yourself who you are like that's a fucking human story of like growing up basically like everyone kind of goes through that in some sort of way and like i don't know like i think that tori peters i remember has has sort of talked about that a lot especially because her book is detransition baby is like is like four cisgendered divorced women like that's like the the epigraph it's like this is this is for you like it's sort of and she sort of talks about the ways in which like that is sort of a, a similar sort of transition is what like she went through like it's just like really interesting the way that you know these stories that we might not think could because of this sort of like weird identity idea like those are those are maybe the stories that you really need to read and that humans are capable of like seeing beyond like plot and like seeing the metaphor and like things behind that like seeing the meaning that's They they can sort of glean off that aside from just like, oh, my life is not exactly that, so I can't see something in there. Like, there's an emotional resonance that still works if you're not this person you're reading about.
2: For sure. Like, I I completely agree. Like, I think at the top of, like, the literary necessity and timeliness is trans narratives uh, and intersections of trans narratives. Because I remember being in Trish Salah's graduate course and we were it was like all uh, trans narratives and that was like the kind of clicking moment for me uh in being like how do i define my queerness for myself and like claim sovereignty to this identity that i want and like i was yeah. first discovered to like two-spiritedness and like um gender queerness and non-binaryness and i was like finally thank you yeah. like i needed this <laughs> language i just i also didn't know it existed in something that i might have avoided or not seen before such as yeah. translate narrative um yeah. and yeah i think it has exactly what everyone needs um, <laughs> based in in those narratives because you're right it yeah. is that that's that narrative is just like so essential and like medicinal and yeah. the categorizations of it are so broad i guess i'd yeah. say no it's horrible <laughs> it's very very <laughs> um, well I'm yeah. almost on time here john but i'll ask yes, you one last i'm time. not a
3: fan of so i'm i'm as you know <laughs> bet
2: yeah. <laughs> <No worries. laughs> um so i'll start off as i'll end as we started so we were like baby in winnipeg uh yeah. if you could like now me being i will not age myself but in the <laughs> early 30s um, like what what book or books would you give to um the john and josh like we when we first met oh my god well fuck with josh
3: i would give him johnny up <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you i needed it yeah <laughs> so- yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, like books that exist now or are... one book that I really super loved and also has some like ruralness. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, Time is the Thing, A Body Moves Through by T. Fleischman. I don't know if you've I read just, that.
2: I just bought it. And I think okay. I've seeing seen like your Instagram stories. Yeah, and I, I like
3: probably the... <laughs> I proselytized about that book for a while. Yeah, no, it's so good. And I think that like the way that they talk about. A lot, like, I mean, just in terms of, like, I read, read that, like, as I think I was, like, finishing up June batten, I just saw so much, like, the ways that of, because they also are, like, very much, like, fuck these categories, fuck the words, like, they don't even identify as trans, like, they don't, like, use any of the, like, terminology, like, that's just not helpful. And I was just, like, so connected with that, and also, like, all of the stories is just sort of, like, connected to morality and just the queerness of the book itself in terms of, like the way that it's like an essay, but then it like breaks off into verse for a while and then comes back. And it's just like this very yeah, fluid, yeah. weird creature of a book. I would probably give that to probably both of us and we probably both would really <laughs> like
2: it. Yeah. I'm going to start it. And I would have to give like Jason It Was Never Going to Be Okay to, to me and ourselves. Um, and also like I've really been to Shoon King's You Were Eating an Orange, You Were Naked recently. Um, I think I, I would give that. that yeah. Oh, it's beautiful book book hug um beautiful sentences are so sparse and like some of my sentences are like full paragraphs so I need to learn gravity (laughs) yeah
3: (laughs) I'm I'm also like that I I can make a sentence go on for pages yeah
2: Well, I did read you had to cut like 20,000 words from vanishing monuments with Arsenal (laughs) yeah
3: I mean I didn't I probably didn't have to but they did a very they sure rose was very insistent and I was it it definitely helped I think I didn't I can't even notice like I, I read it now i'm just like i don't know where those words were she's like a she's a precision surgeon that one, but, yeah.
2: well it's time travel uh and we'll come back we'll meet again and think about all the different experiences we would have had yes. and hopefully not back to back to back to back books but i'm yeah. very excited for my volcano and i hope folks will like Thank to read. um moving parts and i know you have some other things in the works so there's lots to look forward to with john with yeah. um thanks so much for taking some time and talking with me and just being like wholly unabashedly queer for an hour and change
3: yeah i know this was this was so much fun we should do this every week <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly <laughs> <laughs> all righty well i'll end it there um until next so- time.
1: We hope you enjoyed this interview of John Elizabeth Stincy by Joshua Whitehead. I'm Ryan Stern, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Cando Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stubel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jalin, Mahmoud Ababne, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Shuya Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Benjamin Gong, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.